welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast for adults. You are listening to a weekly publication, produced every Friday morning. This is our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com Cassie will introduce today's guest. This week on episode 457, we hop on over to the south coast of England to talk to our friend, the Kink Shrink. We take a look into our psyche and learn a lot about cut queening. It's spelled funny, Q-U-E-N. Let's find out why. Here's you host, Woody. Thanks, Max and Cassie. Online today with me from the greater London area, actually south of London on the coast, is the Kink Shrink. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? I am so good, and I'm so glad that you're back. You've been on the show once before and introduced us to a little bit of kink in the English countryside. And you are a licensed therapist. Licensed is interesting. In the UK, we don't have to be licensed. It's crazy. There are no regulations. Anyone can call themselves a psychotherapist, a therapist, or a counselor in the UK, whereas abroad, in different countries. So I, one of my qualifications is an international one, so I can work anywhere in the world. However, yes, that is what I do. And I am qualified and trained and done all my hours. Yeah. And what would you officially call that then? So I've done counseling and psychotherapy. I've done both courses, but I've also done about eight, seven and a half postgraduates because I decided to get cancer at the end of the last one. So I've done I do trauma couples, I, and it's really important, I think, if you see anybody that they've got a trauma, some kind of trauma certificate, because often the basic stuff doesn't cover that. So I've done psychosexual psychotherapy and, diff- and couples and relationships therapy as different forms of specialism afterwards to make sure that I can cover what we talk about and who I am and work with kinksters and polyamorists, really. One of the big hot buttons right now is the difference between consent and abuse. And I see that on FetLife all the time. People are saying it went too far, safe words weren't obeyed, all those things. Yeah. And it gets to be a rather difficult thing out there. And for the community to rally around people, what they have to play safe. I think... You can never take back something you've done, but you can always do more next time. And I think we're all pushing. We want everything. I think it's a reflection of us, our society as a whole. We see certain people and certain characters doing these things and we want it all and we want it now and we want it packaged and we want it delivered and we want it today. Mix that with a little bit of frenzy for a new person starting or somebody feeling insecure or lying about what they know and people not taking into account the discussions that you need first. Like, Consent can be really sexy, and I think consent can be pushed too much as well sometimes. It becomes the be-all and end-all and doesn't allow for things to develop, and that's important too, but that's got to be in a consensual way, without coercion, without pressure. So it's a really difficult balance to find, I think, for a lot of people. And I put forward a doctorate a few years ago about retroactive withdrawal of consent as a shame definition. It was something I was looking at writing. I want to read it. I don't want to write it. But it's so interesting as well. I think we really have to make sure that we want to do the things we're doing, both of us. So we both, or three or four, commit to what we want to do. And we realize the implication of it. We can feel really bad afterwards or really shamed or 
have a lot of guilt and that's really dangerous. So I think in all ways, we've just got to be really careful about what we're doing because there are a lot of people coming in who think it's easy sex, think it's easy connection. Hey, you're submissive. You're just going to get laid. That would be easy. And that's not the way it is for the people or for the people amongst us who are lifestylers. That's not the way we approach it at all. There's also the opposite side of that where somebody will come in and they just want to be tied up and they don't want to have sex. Yeah, absolutely. So play doesn't have to include sex, does it? You can have play with sex, play without sex. And what even is sex? We often class sex as just penetrative, penis and vagina. And actually sex is so much more than that. Sex is just a touch. And some people don't want to be touched. And play really matters, especially around, you see a lot more of that around rope, I think, than you do in other areas of play, statistically. So people who want to be tied up just don't want to be touched. And they can agree that but you are in such a vulnerable position. Do you know there's a whole subreddit group, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but it's a group of mainly men who film all of their sexual encounters illegally. And the reason they film isn't because they're for masturbation or porn. They film them for their safety afterwards. They've got this thing about, but I don't want to be accused of anything. See, I've got consent and I did this and I did that. That's horrific because you didn't get consent for the actual recording. I'm that. Yeah, boy, that's that's not even a slippery slope. That's falling off the cliff there. Yeah, it is. And there are thousands of them. There is a massive group and it's, yeah, shocking. And I always understand that people are scared of everything they're doing nowadays, both ways. And we should be. I had a guy come into a workshop I was running the other day and he was saying, yeah, but men get accused of really bad things too. And I said, well, let's just compare those figures, shall we? I think that's very true that men do get accused, but they're in the single digit figures when they're the person on top. Whereas women and men who've been sexually assaulted or abused as the bottoms far out in figures. Communication is the key. Maybe the answer for that video thing is that both sides agree to have a session recorded. And if nothing has gone wrong, erase it. Yeah. And that could be a good idea, couldn't it? So you have some. I guess the other problem with it comes up is in most countries, basic BDSM is illegal. It, you cannot leave more than a trifling or transient mark. So what you've just also done potentially is created evidence. So you would never want someone not to delete it. That's very important as well. Part of what I do when I negotiate is I have a digital policy and I'm very clear on my digital policy about whether you can take photos, whom they belong to, whether you can take a video, who that belongs to, what happens to it maybe if we don't see each other anymore or we stop. I meet a lot of men who will say, hey, do you want to see my ex? And that's really sending me intimate photographs sometimes. And I, whoa, stop. Do you have consent? Should you have that picture? Something that has to be negotiated. I'm a photographer and I've been a professional photographer for a while. I don't do anything without a model release. Yeah. But most people in the kink world don't do that. I remember meeting somebody years ago. I was just about, I was at London Alternative Market and I was about to go downstairs and do a workshop. And somebody I've been speaking to, so this was quite a few years ago. I've definitely changed my digital policy in the last couple of years. I'd sent him a video of me doing anal. And when we stopped talking, I turned around and said, hey, can you delete that video, please? Yeah, sure. Then a few years after that, he is at Lamb with his new girlfriend. And he said, hey, Deb. And I was like, oh, hi, how are you doing? And we just didn't want to take it anywhere. There was no animosity or problems at all. There was no bad communication or anything that I thought was negative. And he turned around and he said to his girlfriend, this is the woman in the video last night. And I said, sorry. 
And he looked at me, I could see it dawning on his face of what he just said and done. And I said, and I just spoke to his girlfriend and I said, you should not have seen that video. You're with somebody who's just broken my consent, one of my agreements. And you really need to think about that. And as for you, I will fucking deal with you later when I come upstairs. I've got to go and run a workshop and I'm about to tell everybody what you've done. And he was like, I blustered. And when I came back upstairs after the workshop, of course, he was nowhere to be found. He'd run. Shame on him for not following through. Yeah. And that's part of the problem we've got, isn't it? How do we develop trust with people that we've just met? Should we take a little more time to agree these things and not just go with the lust sometimes and work out what it is that we want and what that would look like? When someone comes into therapy, one of the main questions I ask is, if you've been seeing me for six weeks, six months, six years, however long it takes, psychotherapeutic time is different to chronological. It's only 1% of your waking time every week. What do you say you want to got from having seen me? So we then work backwards. So we've got this overarching contract as to what the person or the human being wants to achieve. And that's what we're always going towards. So many possibilities and so many things to think about. One of the questions I wanted to ask you you're an expert on the subject of cuck queening. <laughs> well, expert is an interesting word. I think it's kink, isn't it? It's really interesting. What is an expert? If you've been doing something for over 10 thousand hours, that's in the normal world. So I've definitely done that. I am a cuck queen. So that's my main turn on. That's my kink. I've got many kinks, but for me, expert. I have written about it. I've got a writing about it, about the basics. I think that qualifies as expert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it for a long time and it's gone horribly wrong and it's gone horribly brilliantly. It's definitely been a mixture of both. But yeah, it's definitely who I am. It, that emotional aspect of having my partner fuck somebody else, whether I'm there or not. In fact, sometimes I prefer not to be there but most of the time because often my imagination is better than the reality. The things I imagine are far worse for myself or better for myself. And I love being a cup queen. It's a major turn on. But it's an interesting one because as, as soon as you tell a potential partner that you are a cup queen, there are a lot of assumptions made around that. Of, oh, good, so I can just fuck anyone then. It's not quite as simple as that. First off, define cup queen. It isn't as common as you think. So some people will have threesomes and foursomes and meet other people and maybe they're, let's say, so let's go with just heterosexual for a minute because that's how the way it's defined. It used to be that if you've got a cup queen, it's a wife who's compliant, that's the idea, in her fetish for her husband's cheating or adultery. That's the proper legal old-fashioned definition of what it used to be. So it's the female equivalent of the male cuckold. And the definition is the wife of an unfaithful man. So cuck is a reference. So it's like it, that comes from the cuckoo, the bird nest, where someone will come in and tip the other birds out and the cuckoo will take over, usurping others. And it's that's like a certain century type definitions from a long time ago. Whereas queen, spelt with Q-U-E-A-N, kind of dates back to the 17th century. And it used to say that it was an older woman, taken from an English word, C-W-E-N-E, which means old, barren. So the idea is that someone prettier, nicer, whatever, all those horrible words that we used to describe people and compare would take over and use that. So the idea was that the, the older wife would have to tolerate or put up with the husband's shenanigans. But as a fetish, it doesn't mean anything about being married, does it? It's simply about what this means to us. And I think the problem is there are no rules how to do this apart from consensually and with good communication. So we need to talk about what cut queening looks like. So for some, 
a cup queen is a very willing participant in sexual activities with a partner or somebody else. So that can be joining in, that can be not joining in, that could be tied to the bed, it could be putting the cupboard, just listening. It could be made to watch, it could be tied in a chair. It could be that you're made to masturbate while you're watching. It could be complete, it could be ritualistic. So you're preparing the other woman for a man. In my case, I'm a queer woman, but in this scenario, this is how it works for me. She may or may not be involved in finding the other woman or communication with the other woman. It might be a one night stand, but she has, I have some involvement, some girl. So it just depends um, on how you want to make it work. And for some people, it's compassion where you've got absolute love for the other person receiving joy from it. And from others, it's pragmatic. It, there might be boredom there or different things. And the person just wants to have a lot of fun. They want a little bit of a change. And I still get pleasure out of that. I personally like recordings, videos, comparison. I like the humiliating side of it, where I like a little bit of humiliation and degradation as part of it. They were much better because. So they're not better because they're better. They're better because they're different. And I also get compassion out of it as well. I love the fact that they've had pleasure, but the way it really works for me is that it has a shit ton of degradation and humiliation involved as well. Okay, and the degradation is aimed at your partner? At me. So my partner is busy having sex with somebody else. So maybe I'm hearing the slap of their skin against each other and... He might be saying things like, God, you're so much better than her. You feel better. You're tighter, looser, whichever is better in that moment. You're, the way you move, your body is different. So for me, the degradation is about me and the humiliation is about me because I have a real humiliation and degradation. And it could be that, for example, if we've all agreed that fluid bonding is there, for example, if he comes inside of the only one made to lick it up or lick it out, it could be that I hear recordings and He's just saying that how much he likes her and how beautiful she is and how tired I am. So I can take all of those things. Of course, this is really pushing the envelope stuff for some people. So you've got to be able to careful to agree what the comparisons are. Because if you start comparing size, age, attraction, different things, that will really trigger some people into a really negative place. For me, it absolutely works. However, for me, it's also about the love of it, which is interesting because the thing that turns me on the most is the fact that he always comes back to me, chooses me. In the end, you're the one. Yeah. Yeah. So even if he maybe comes home and or we're in the same place, whatever it is, we're in a club, it doesn't matter where it is. So it might be that he's had some form of sexual contact with it, or they played brilliantly. So not all sex and players are saying are together. So it could just be he's had this amazing time, but it could also be that there has been sexual activity. And for example, he'll come home and put his cock inside me or put it inside my mouth. So vaginally, or anyway, so like any orifice. And then you've got to be aware of the risk of that as well, because you're now introducing new floor and everything, but I liked that risk. So it's all about that. I love listening to it, mainly where my imagination goes. And it's one of the things that probably makes me all cancel harder than anything else. So you've seen video of the scene, but you also can have him tell you about the scene. Yeah, and telling is good too. And it's the involvement. If somebody just says, hey, I'm meeting this woman, okay, or this man, doesn't matter, or this, it doesn't matter. The, the gender actually is absolutely irrelevant. So I'm meeting this other human being, okay? And then they come back and say, yeah, I met them. 
that's not enough. I want the salacious, juicy details and preferably so I can degrade myself or they can degrade. It's that, it's, there's also a constant fear with it, isn't it? What if they like this person or what's going to happen and how's it going to be? Videos can be good, sound can be good, or a story can be good. It might be that they phone me while they're doing it and I can hear everything that's going on. It might be that I see pictures. It might be that the pictures aren't clear. It might be that she tells me all about it or he tells me all about it or they tell me all about it, depending on their gender and sexuality as well afterwards. It sounds very interesting. And yeah, there, there is a risk in there. You know that he comes back to you every time. And there is that risk that he likes the other one so much better. Yeah. And that's part of the turn on that fear factor that goes with it. It's always a risk, isn't it? When we start to introduce other people into relationships, even as polyamorous, if we're somebody who's poly, there's always a risk that we like different things at different times. But I think what we have to learn to ride and that's part of the danger of it, is that new relationship energy. Because for that moment, it really does look like the other person is preferred or is better, and that's the risk of new relationship energy. For the person, I hate the word old relationship, it's current, it's present, it's not old, it's not done. It's the other, it, there are other relationships involved, and there's always that risk that somebody prefers spending more time because or prefers doing that particular thing with that person. And that's one of the risks that we take with poly, as well as all of the advantages of it. Holly is a multi-edged sword because let's say you're married to one person, you bring another person in. Maybe you've known everybody for years, decades, but the question is, how do they fit? And is there a priority system? If you're married to one person, that's a fairly clear line. And this other person comes in, it's a very dotted line, and you're trying to figure out where it fits. For me, listening to that, there is a default. Of course, somebody has more power because marriage could be more power. It could be about ownership of a property. It could be about children. It could be about who's on the insurance. It's just the basic stuff and who does what and how does that work. Now, for me, when I'm in a, and I've lived in polyamorous relationships a fair bit in my life, is that cut queening comes into it a little bit for me. So I like the hierarchy to be that actually I'm the one being degraded, but it might also then shift because I'm the one doing all the cooking or sorting something out and I'm the motherly one and I'm the one in charge or not in charge. So I think sometimes it's really important for those power balances to shift effectively and to be pairing and to think of everybody involved because I think body hierarchy should actually be oneself. I think if you look after yourself and make sure you're healthy and you're well, a lot of your relationships will work well anyway. So I think there is a hierarchy in poly and that should be you as a primary, first of all, as a human being to yourself. You should be your own primary. And then a lot of it will work well if everybody looks after themselves. If I said to you, what makes you happy? We might spend hours trying to work that out and I might not know how to fulfill that for you. I'll fulfill certain jobs and over the years I'll get to know what works for you. But actually, you know what makes you happy already. So how do we go and do that and actually make ourselves healthier to be in that polyamorous situation to care for everybody equally? Everybody's responsible, even if you've got a dominant who is responsible. Surely one of the rules should be look after yourself and make sure that you hold your boundaries and you're getting what you want. And because fantasy is so bloody different to reality, isn't it? Talk about all these things and we say, hey, this is how it is. But you don't know how it is until you try it yourself. About a month ago, we did a show on hedonism, and a lot of people just think of it as sex party 24 yeah. hours a day. 
but this woman redefined it and it's making you happy. What makes you happy is hedonism. And I'm going, I've never looked at it that way, but now that you're just saying out of three people, four people, make yourself happy, deal with the relationship as how it pleases me and others. Yeah. It's a different kind of a way to look at it. It's important to find that balance. We have to understand that we are the only ones that can make ourselves happy. And look, being in service, cup all things, they really matter to me and they're important. However, they are not everything. If I get stuck into that and all I do, the Gottman's a real expert in relationships. You've got the two of them. So they're a married couple and they're both doctors. And they are my go-to when it comes to research or anything. They are fantastic as relationship experts and everything they do is very scientifically done. And one of the things they talk about is that you have to put yourself in the present. You have to be present in the relationship. So if you hold back on not asking for what you want, or if you don't say what doesn't work for you, you are not in the relationship. You are not present. And especially as a submissive, if I think about that, part of my responsibility is to say, this is all of me. This is how I work. This is what I want. This is how I like to please. Can you tell me the same from the opposite perspective? And then how can we make that work? If you just do and you become bitter about it or you're angry and it doesn't work for you, and this is why cup cleaning has to be so consensual. If you're doing it because you think it's just making your partner happy, you are not making yourself happy. In fact, in BDSM, in MS and DS for me, it's not just about power exchange and sex. It's about really enhancing the other human being. It's really about making them a better person than they ever would be. And you're doing, you're both doing that. Your three of you are doing that. The four of you are doing that. You are evolving and growing together. And that's part of the responsibility. Is it just about suck my cock away? A relationship can't be built on that. It's about that joint journey and goal where we're trying to make the most of being together and having a great time. And everyone's responsible for themselves in that. And you add the love factor, people want to be with you. And I say people as multiple people. Yeah. And it's cool, isn't it? Again, with cup cleaning, what often happens is what I find is a lot of when I'm meeting men in this particular scenario, who, and they say, oh, will you go out and find the woman for me? And my answer is often, no. Actually, what I find is a lot of men who send out their groups or their girls or their entourage to go and find other women, that becomes quite messy and actually often leads to, to a little bit more manipulation. Not always, not clearly not always. What's important is though that she in this scenario or he or they in this scenario need to be attracted to the man in this scenario, not me. I've been in a cup cream relationship before when we actually ended up quite poorly. And what happened is probably her and I were more in love than him and her. So there was an imbalance because she felt for me because I'd done the sorting, the getting, and they ended up breaking up, but we ended up staying together. And that is a whole bag of conflicts. Oh, I've been through poly breakups because everybody hurts. Everybody really does hurt. And I think part of what we need to discuss when we're looking at polyamory is what do we do when there is a breakup? What do we do when your partner's heartbroken about somebody else or not heartbroken? They're the one who stopped it, but you don't want to. What are the guys? What does that look like? And this particular relationship went on for three or four years, all of us. And it was really sad in the end to watch it all disintegrate and dissolve because of that. 
It's a difficult thing. Earlier, you brushed against the subject of legal. Yes, a married couple has legal rights. They have property together. They have investments, bank accounts, all those sorts of things. And here comes the other person who is not as attached. Yeah. They don't seem to have the rights as the government would hand out rights because you can't marry them. You can't tie them into the family in any meaningful way legally. I think there are a couple of states, maybe one, I can't remember which one it is, that in America that are actually now recognizing polyamorous relationships when it comes to rights, which is fantastic. And that's the way it should, absolutely should go because people do and should have equal rights. And rights are interesting, aren't they? And I think you have to recognize hierarchy when it's there and you have to name it and you have to understand that you have privilege. And it's a way of working out how you deal with that and what it would mean to the other person. And I think you've got to ask, what do you need from us? What would that look like? I've, we've often been in situations where maybe someone's come to live with us or, and, and then it's like, so, but it's not just about, often what people do is we, we say, oh, well, so if this person comes and lives with us, these are our rules. But how are they just your rules? All three of you need to be involved or four of you need to be involved in making those rules together and making it work. And then how does it work? So like in cup cleaning, for example, is this person a unicorn? Do they interact, interact sexually with both of us or don't they? Is there a separation? Are we a triad? Are we, what does this look like? And what are the rules around this? And how do we change the rules as we develop and move forward? For me, I really need a cupcake, which is that other woman who comes in that they can be called stabs or vixens, the more like that, a different version of a bull in cuckold when you share. And they can be vanilla, they can be dominance, they can be many things for me personally as a human being. But we have to work out what that looks like. Because if actually I live alone at the moment, this is my house. If I bring somebody in and then bring another person in, how do I protect my property? Actually, we're starting to talk about legal stuff. Um, Because I like when it's going to my kids, that person, but then is that fair? How does that work if somebody starts paying rent? What's it mean? Fuck, it's so complex, isn't it? And there's no clear rules for it. No. You're going to make your own. Make it up as you go. I think one of the responsibilities that I experience is if somebody starts paying or doing stuff, we've got options. If you like slave ownership, if we have somebody who doesn't work and maybe we need to put some money aside for when we die or when something happens, so actually they are safe and they are well and they are looked after. If they are working, how do we work that out? What's the agreement where somebody pays towards something? How do we work that out? What would that look like? So if, if my kids, I've got four daughters, if any of my daughters come to live with me after university and they pay me a bit of rent, I take the rent because I think that's a good lesson to learn that, that it costs to live somewhere. I'm not doing you a favor by letting you live somewhere for free. However, I take that money and when they leave, I give it back to them. So they've invested in a way. Because I can afford to do that. That's a luxury and a privilege, isn't it? It is. And that then helps them start their next phase of life. Yeah. It does. And then do we owe that to people that come and live with us? How do we work that out? Because if you've got like a married couple and cup cleaning or just polyamory without the cup cleaning is involved, how do we make sure that person has that same investment in a way as well? There are so many things to think about. It's way more complex than people think. It's, that's the fantasy versus the reality. I was saying to you earlier, actually, before we started recording, the most common reason couples come to me 
it isn't just about sex and money. It's often about how we communicate and who does what job and whose responsibility everything is. And yes, the sex is fun and we can have a great time, but you might bloody argue over who's taking the bins out or who should be doing something or whether you've cleaned something in the right way or whether it's up to somebody's standard or whether you put the cushions back or they're the most common arguments that we have. Affairs and everything else as well, they come later. And I often see couples and colleagues when actually the behavior is the problem, but actually it's not the root cause. The cause started way before. And I really wish sometimes I could get my hand on couples and colleagues before that so we can create situations so it doesn't what happens less. It's a really good advice. And especially with people that are looking to get into poly relationships or, or just in it and trying to figure it out, these kinds of services are just invaluable. It's interesting. I often get couples say, hey, listen, we're thinking about opening up. Can we book a couple of sessions with you? And one of the things I mentioned that they maybe haven't thought of is the finances. Like, why would you think that it would cost you? You're all of a sudden having three or four dates instead of one or two. You're going out a bit more. You might need a hotel. You might go to the cinema. You might need to buy different toys or clean toys differently. You might need different sheets. You might need all sorts of different things that impact people when you open up a relationship. And we all concentrate on the emotional and that really matters, really matters. We need to concentrate on consent. We need to concentrate how someone feels about things. We might be fine if someone fucks our partner or we fuck them and they might be played without sex even. So we might be fine that someone snork that person. But then we notice that they're drinking from our special cups. Or we notice that they've got our anniversary mugs that we bought in Amsterdam. We were there. And that, fucker, that's more than the player obsessed. That's very personal at that point. And also, if you look at sex and play, if you divide that down to the percentage of time that happens, it's in the less than 1% area. Yeah, it's minuscule. Life goes on, and there's a whole lot of meaningful things that have to be dealt with. Relationships happen in the mundane is one of my favorite expressions. It's how you do the washing up together. It's how you work out who's made breakfast or who's got to go or who's going to take the car in for a service. It's not all gloriously sexy and play-based. Those are episodes in our lives that, that are really important and matter. I, I am fundamentally kinky. I've been kinky for 40 years and I'm 57. That's a shit ton of my life as a percentage. And it really matters to me. It's not a game. It's not who I'm pretending to be. It's who I am. And it's really important. So it doesn't take a ball of my life though, because it cannot. It just can't. I work. I have children. I run workshops. And, and a lot of my work is based around kink. I would argue that probably 90% of my clients are kinky. But they, we don't talk about the kink. The kink isn't the problem. The stuff in their life is the problem. And that's what somebody wants to talk to me about because I won't pathologize the kink or the poly or the play or the sex. I can help with the problems, maybe. We can help improve a relationship. But they're coming to me so I don't pathologize the kink so we can just sort out the issues in the relationship or the depression or the different things that people are feeling in a moment. Well, it makes a lot of sense. You've shined a new light on some things for me. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you. You always do. I think you do an incredible service to the community. And actually, that service is really important to me as well. I'm so aware that when I run a workshop, lots of people turn up. I'm really privileged that loads of people come to workshops. I run them for free. And I run them for free and occasionally, yeah, people might patron me or give me a coffee, KOFI, 
or do things, but I'm fundamentally doing them for free. Why? Because it's my way of giving back. And I think, isn't it amazing that you can give back? Don't get me wrong, my ego does get fed a little bit as well. I'm not going to say it doesn't. I go back into the scene. Oh, it's, it's scary. A long time. I started in the scene in Amsterdam. Yeah. I have play styles based on European style. I, when I came back to the States, my girlfriend was in Los Angeles, and so I got into that community. Then we moved up to the San Francisco area, and now we moved to Tennessee. So lots of things have changed. Different areas have different mores and the way we look at things. We're firmly in the middle of the Bible Belt here. Yeah. Things are very conservative around us. Yeah. And so we're a bit of a freak show around here. Certainly in Amsterdam, things were as liberal as you could get. And sex is just normal there. And sex in the broad term, you see kink all the time there. Yeah. Not so much here. No, and, but depending where you are, I've done talks, I'm very lucky, internationally. And I don't keep to that world. I myself what I do. And it's so interesting because every place you go, when you meet someone from a different culture, there's a different approach. And we have to think about that culture in that moment. It's the same as psychotherapy, actually. If, if I'm sitting with somebody from a different culture, a different religion, a different upbringing, that needs to be in there. We have to think about that. That's really important. And it's the same with the king. You, you'll go to certain places and that isn't approved of or that isn't approved of. And sometimes when I'm talking, I can watch an audience or go, because I've said something that's appropriate for my culture. It's like, okay, that's not very popular here. Let's talk about that. Why? What's the difference? Or we don't approve of that. There are certain countries that shall name this particular country where a full power exchange, like an MS dynamic, is completely frowned upon in the community. And because it's like, why on earth would you let somebody have more power over you? That's ridiculous. And that's the way that society sees it. Yeah. I came back to play in Amsterdam at one of these big parties that they have, and it wasn't a dungeon party. It was S&M stand and model. Oh, okay. And so everybody's there looking really good. Yeah. I pull out a flogger and start playing with it, and people are looking at me like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm so with you on that. Maybe that is age and experience and different things. I hate the whole dressing up. You won't find me in nether, in plastics, in PVC, in, in much lingerie either. I want someone to get the flogger out and beat the shit out of me. I want somebody to do things to me. I, I'm not about the look. I'm about the doing. It's the experience for me. You don't find me at many clubs because I'm not allowed in my swimming because I want to turn up in my flowery dress, whatever. It's just not approved of. It's to hit you up in my head. That's what matters, surely. Oh, you go to clubs, they inspect you before you go in. And if you don't meet the dress code, you don't get in. Uh, we have that a lot in the UK. We have a, a definitely a certain few clubs in London where you can even be dressed up. And if your face doesn't fit or you're not right, you're not going to get in. And some people love to be part of that crowd. And that's great. But of course, it also leaves out diversity. And that really matters because kink is full of diversity. We're all different ages, shapes, and sizes. We're not all that plastic model of what we consider to be perfect. And that plastic model is fucking beautiful as well sometimes. And so is everyone else. And that's a real shame if we leave out diversity because we also leave out experience or we leave out care or considerations that human beings in general. And an older person who may have a lot more experience doesn't get in because they're an old person. Yeah. <laughs> like myself. Uh, yeah, because I spoke to, I was asked to do a talk years ago by this doctor of dating, he called himself. 
And he was talking about how he does speed dating in different areas. Not so much kink, this was just generalized, but I kind of talk about sex and love and relationships. And I said, sure. I said, well, I think I was about 50 at the time. I said, well, I'm 50. Do you do speed dating for 50? And he went really quiet. I take it that's a no then. Honestly, I find even if I do forges, not many men turn up. <laughs> and it's a real shame, isn't it, that we are discarded because of age or size or gender or many different things. And each of us have our preference, and I really respect that as well. Nobody owes attraction. That is absolutely fundamental. But to be discarded is slightly different. Yeah, it's sad. There are some societies that respect older people, and sometimes... We don't see that in this. And see that, again, that's a, <laughs> that comes into cut queening to me as well. Sometimes when there's an age gap and it's really different, that can be used really beneficially for me. However, I'm also really aware of my worth, my experience, what I'm worth, who I am as well. And that matters too. Actually, I think to do anything like this, you do have to be okay and secure in and of yourself. If you're not, that tiniest crack, as soon as somebody does something and maybe humiliates you or does something and you're worried about it, that crack turns into a massive chasm around your self-esteem or your okayness because you're really playing with edgy stuff here. So my age helps me with that, I think, because I do know myself or I do like myself and I feel good about that. Being solid is probably the most important thing. And there is a lot of people that have problems with their self-esteem. Oh, so that would be a very dangerous thing to get into. Really dangerous. And so would Polly, though. If you have a really low self-esteem, as soon as you start to add in multiple potential pushbacks, then you're not ready for that. If, so, And Polly can build up our self-esteem, so it can be used really positively as well, but you've got to know how to do that. If our insecurities are played upon, and I like that humiliating side of cut cleaning, then no, that can absolutely destroy someone. We've covered a lot of ground here. We've run out of time. But we're going to talk more about this in some other show because it's fascinating. You've got so many things going on and lots of experience at it. So we all want to know more about what makes us all tick in the kinky sexual world. Oh, happily. I'll come back anytime. It's so important to me to share. And if I can do that and give back, that, that's, yes, of course, it feeds my ego as I sit. But also, it's a, I feel really good for doing it. I do it for me as well as much as anybody else. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You have been listening to the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast, and we welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max.